You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is part two of the story of Archibald Thompson Hall, the butler. we heard all about Archibald Thompson Hall and his transformation from the son of a postal worker into Roy Hall, the thief, and Roy Fontaine, the suave butler. He lost it after a life filled with the finer things, one in which he would be in the company of high society and have the benefit of every luxury. That was not something that Roy Hall could achieve, or at least achieve and enjoy for any great period of time, And so he became a butler, a person who at the very least had access to the sort of people he wanted to be his peers, and if he couldn't join them, he would rob them. By 1977, Roy had spent much of his life in prison and had been on the run from police more than once. He was a known conman and an escapee from prisons, and by that stage was trying to re-establish some sort of front for himself as a loyal servant. He took a job in his native Scotland for a Lady Hudson. But while he was sizing up the estate and laying his plans to rob the place, his former prison mate and lover, David Wright, entered the picture, and this was to prove to be his eventual downfall. Wright wanted to get what he could in the moment, and after stealing one of the mistress's rings, a fight ensued between the two. Wright shot at Roy with a rifle, and it was then that Roy decided that Wright had to go. That's how David Wright ended up in a shallow grave next to a stream in the Curtleton estate, and how Roy Hall, the monster butler, became a murderer. Surprisingly, all went relatively smoothly for Roy after that, until 1977, that is, when his ditching of Hazel Peterson came back to haunt him. One evening, Margaret Hudson received a phone call from a man purporting to be a police officer, who was calling to inform her that her butler had a long criminal past. She immediately rang the local police who were able to confirm this to her and accompanied her to Roy's room to inform him that he was to leave immediately. She paid him three months' wages in lieu of notice and the police took him to a hotel in Gretna Green after ensuring that nothing from the house was missing. The next day, John Wooter came and picked him up. It turned out that that call had in fact been made by Colin Peterson, Hazel's son. By October, Roy had rented himself a cottage in Newton Arlish in order to have a place to call his own. He told his new landlord that he was a recently divorced man and needed a place to base himself from while he sorted his affairs out. He even paid rent in advance through to January of the next year. What was strange about this, though, was that Roy, at the time he started the lease, had agreed to take a position as a butler in London for a couple called Mr. and Mrs. Scott Elliot. They were an elderly couple, he was in his 80s and she was in her 60s, and they were very well off, and the position provided that he would have separate quarters from their flat in the city, in the same building, on Sloane Street. The couple were becoming more and more infirm and difficult as time went on, 
In fact, Mrs. Scott Elliot, Dorothy, was so crotchety that the staff turnover in the house was really high. But Roy estimated that there was over £100,000 in their bank accounts, and so decided that he'd stick out the ill temper in order to find some way of getting at their money. This happened to be much easier than he had initially thought. When it came time to pay bills, Mr. Scott Elliot would simply hand the butler a signed cheque. So slowly, and with small amounts so as not to be noticed, Roy began to skim cash from them. He also had another plan to establish a line of revenue, through break-ins. He wanted to target the other wealthy people who lived in the flats around him in Sloan Street. There was a problem, though. Roy knew that at his age, there was no way he'd be physically fit enough. And Roy couldn't think of anyone else to fit the bill, either. So he went to his old friend Mary Coggle to see what she suggested. There was no way she'd be doing the break-ins, she was a forger, but quickly enough she introduced Roy to a man who would become his fast friend and lover for the next few months, Michael Anthony Kitto. Kitto was a small-time crook, and at this time he was on the run for a minor theft. He grabbed a hundred quid from a till in a pub and run off. This was the kind of thing that he was used to doing, petty thefts, not burglaries. But Roy took to the 39-year-old and decided that this was the guy who was going to help him execute his plans. On the 9th of December, Roy and Kitto had nearly everything ready. Kitto came to Roy's flat in the building, and they drank for hours talking through the plan. But then they ran out of drink. So, naturally, Roy went to steal some from his employer's and himself and Kitto entered the Scott Elliot's flat. But as they were heading for the liquor cabinet, they disturbed Dorothy, who peered out of her room and demanded to know what Roy was doing there and who in the hell this other man was. Kitto grabbed the frail woman and covered her mouth with his hand. She immediately started bleeding and struggled for a moment before she fell limp to the floor. Roy then went and got a pillow and held it over Mrs. Scott Elliot's face until he was quite sure that she was dead. In the next room over, Walter, Mr. Scott Elliot, stirred at hearing his wife's cries for help, but Roy went in and gave him more of his sleeping medicine and assured him that everything was fine. Then Kitto and Roy returned to Roy's own rooms. Roy went to sleep, but Kitto said later that he couldn't. He couldn't get the scene out of his head and was horrified at what he'd done. When Roy awoke, he laughed at Kitto and told him not to worry, that he had a plan. He then sent the younger man off to find Mary Coggle and took in breakfast to his one living employer. Roy served up tea laced with Valium and spun a tale that Dorothy had gone off to Scotland for Christmas a little early with a lady friend of hers, and she had made arrangements for her husband to follow after her with yet another lady friend. She had suggested that why didn't he get some cash out and spend the afternoon in his club? So Walter got himself dressed and did as he thought his wife had asked him. He went and had lunch in the club while his loyal butler was packing his things. Meanwhile, Roy and his cronies arranged a car and got Mary Coggle dressed to play not only the part of Dorothy's friend for Mr. Scott Elliot's benefit, but also Dorothy herself in order to hire the car they'd need to travel north in. She made use of Mrs. Scott Elliot's wardrobe for this and picked out a nice two-piece suit and a gorgeous mink jacket which she was unable to stop petting. The men went into Dorothy's room, took her outer clothing off, and wrapped her up in blankets before transferring her into the boot of the car. 
When Walter arrived home, he was handed a whiskey by Roy, which had more pills crushed into it, and was introduced to Kitto as their driver, and to Mary as Dorothy's friend. But the effects of the drugs were so strong that the old man, who was nearly senile at the best of times, had very little clue of what was going on around him. The four got into the rented car and headed north, to Scotland. They drove all afternoon and well into the evening until they passed through the small village of Braco. They turned down a narrow road and drove until they reached the edge of Loch Erne, and that's where Roy and Kitto unceremoniously dumped Dorothy Scott Elliott's body. Her husband sat in the car, none the wiser, so under the influence of the drugs that he had been given that the four of them would later say the old man didn't even know what day of the week it was. The next day, the agenda for the two men consisted of driving back down to London to ransack the Scott Elliott's flat. They left Mary in charge of Walter and gave her strict instructions about how to dose him with his medication and to make sure that he did not go outside. Roy and Kitto filled the boot of the car with bits and pieces from the flat, small stuff that would be easy to sell. They didn't want to overburden themselves as Roy thought it would make them look suspicious. While they were in the flat, one of Dorothy's nephews rang. He and his wife were supposed to have had lunch with the couple that day, but there was no one at the flat when they called by. Roy fobbed him off with a story about how his employers were in the country. Over the next while, he would tell his victim's family that they were in Scotland or in Italy and tried to keep them from the house. Roy made sure to cancel any deliveries that were planned and to redirect the Scott Elliot's post to a hotel in Rome. When the boot of the car was full, the two headed off. On their way back to the cottage, they stopped into a number of pubs and also sold some of the items they had brought up from London. But when they got back to the cottage, all was not well. Walter Scott Elliot had been more trouble than they had anticipated. His well-worn routine of breakfasting, dressing and going for a walk could not be broken by Mary. He was insistent that he would go for his constitutional and had left the house despite Mary's best efforts. She assured Roy that it had only been for a few minutes and that no one had seen the old man, but that wasn't true. Either way, Roy was now painfully aware that Mr. Scott Elliot was a huge problem. He had to be got rid of. So for the next two days, the four of them drove around Scotland, heading ever north. They stopped in pubs for long drinking sessions, sold some of the antiques stolen from the London flat, and stayed in country hotels as if nothing at all was the matter. Then finally, in Invernessure, they found a bleak and desolate spot, far from the tiny villages in the area. The first thing Roy did was pull out Walter's checkbook. He ordered the man to sign his name to all the checks in it, but after he'd done three, Scott Elliot seemed to have a moment of lucidity and refused to sign any more. Roy became enraged. He ordered the ex-army officer out of the car and attempted to strangle the old man with his own scarf. That failed, and so Kitto wrapped his hands around Walter's neck. As the two killers headed back to the car, though, they heard a groan. Roy had had enough. He continued to the car, grabbed a shovel from the boot that he had brought in case he needed to dig a grave, and handed it to Kitto. One blow from this, and Mr. Scott Elliot was dead. Again, the reduced group travelled back to Roy's rented cottage in a protracted pub crawl. 
But just as they were nearing their destination, Mary announced that she was going back to London the next morning. She was becoming increasingly afraid of Roy and his actions and wanted to take the clothes and money that she had gotten so far back home to show them off to her friends in safety. Roy objected at first, but when they got to the cottage, he told her to go unpack, that Kitto would drop her to the station. When she came out of her room with her packed bag, Roy turned to her and said, quote, Well, it looks like goodbye, Mary. He then picked up a poker sitting next to the fire and slammed it down on her from above. He missed her head but hit her shoulder and she fell to the floor. One more whack did it and then Mary was dead. Roy stripped her and then redressed her in men's clothing. He thought that it might confuse the authorities if they were ever to find her. Then he and Kitto wrapped Mary's body in plastic before shoving it under a bed to be taken care of later. They drank and slept, and the following evening decided to load up Mary and her belongings and get rid of them. The first place that popped into Roy's mind was Lady Hudson's estate, which happened to be relatively close by. The two men got into the car and drove towards Margaret Hudson's place and stopped at a bridge over the Blackburn. They took the body out of the plastic wraps and tossed her into the stream. On the drive back to the cottage, they stopped every once in a while, when they got to a secluded spot, and threw away Mary's belongings, piece by piece. The cottage was a mess when they got back, and they set about wiping up the blood stains and trying to put the place to rights. Roy and Kitto got into the car and drove to a remote spot to ditch the poker, and then the two headed down to Violet's and John's for the Christmas period. They booked themselves in at a local hotel, but they didn't stay there for the entirety of their booking. They headed once again down to London to make off with more silver and collectible coins from the Scott Elliots. On Christmas morning 1977, a young man, Duncan Kerr, was driving a tractor down a road from Waterbeck to Middleby, near to the Curtleton estate. Farms didn't stop working, even on holidays, and he was out that morning to collect the carcass of a bull that had gone and died in a field that happened to be the furthest away from the farm. As he crawled at a snail's pace down the road, he took time looking around. The place was entirely deserted and silent but for the sound of his tractor's engine growling along. It was cold. As he turned the tractor to go over a bridge that crossed a stream called the Black Burn, he noticed something in the water, some sort of fabric. And when he looked closer, he realised that it was the body of a man whose clothing had been anchored down in place in a fast-running stream by an iron bar. Duncan went off to find a phone, to notify the police, and to ring his own dad, too. When the local sergeant, John Graham, got to the bridge, Duncan was there with his father. The farmers pointed down into the stream where the body was, and Sergeant Graham scrambled down the banks to get a better look. He saw that the body was actually that of a woman who was dressed in a shirt and trousers. He could see she had been short and had dark brown hair, and had been dead for some time. He knew that the best course of action was to touch nothing, and so he retreated back up the bank and into his car to go back to the station and call in the cavalry. Just after midday, the investigating team arrived. The scene was photographed, and a local doctor examined the body when it was removed from the water, before it too was photographed in detail. 
Soil samples were taken, and then the area was combed for anything that might have been out of place. A cigarette packet, a lemonade bottle, some barbed wire with some wool cut onto it. The body was taken to a mortuary in nearby Lockerbie, where it was once again photographed. The next morning, the body of the unidentified woman was transferred to Dumfries and Galloway Infirmary Hospital, where a post-mortem took place. Her clothing was examined and labelled. She was missing shoes and an earring. Scrapings of her nail varnish were collected, and both her upper and lower sets of dentures were also bagged as evidence. When the body was examined, it became quickly apparent that she had suffered a number of injuries before or in and around the time of death. She had cuts on her head and bruises on her left ear and left shoulder. As the procedure went on, a large hemorrhage was found at the base of her brain. This, surely, was what had killed her. The hemorrhage was from an injury to her neck, one so severe that death was its inevitable result. However, it still wasn't clear if the injuries had been the result of an assault or a fall. Nor was there any further indication of who the woman was. No identifying items were found on the body, and no one matching her description had been reported missing. Even after the papers carried the story of the unidentified woman's body being found on Christmas Day, no one came forward with any information as to who she might be. On Christmas Day 1977, Roy spent the day with his sister Violet and her husband John Harvey. Also present were John's parents and Roy and Violet's stepfather, John Wooter. Roy had arrived quite unexpectedly, with a man he introduced as a friend and associate in the antiques business, Robin Kitto. Roy had gone out the day before and had bought all the food for dinner and spent Christmas Day busying himself preparing everything. He wanted to make sure that everyone had a good time and that everything was just so. After dinner, he brought them all out to the hotel that he and Kitto were staying in and lavished them with drinks, topping the night off with champagne for everyone. They had another party the night after. Roy seemed to be quite himself. The fact that he couldn't settle or sit still wasn't taken any mind of, and no one noted that at times he had paced the room. To them, he was his usual jolly self, they thought, and impeccably behaved. The next day, Kitto and Roy made their way back to the cottage in Newton Arlish. They had a few quid on them, as Kitto had sold a stolen watch to John Wooter, but they also had to go about keeping up the pretense to the people that they knew in London that Mary Coggle was still with them in Scotland, and was having a great time. It was important that no one missed her. It was obvious to Roy from the tiny notice in the papers that the police had no real clue as to the identity of the woman who was now buried in a small cemetery in Annan, and Roy and Kitto wanted to make sure that it stayed that way. They also still had a few things to sell, including a fur stole and coat. So Kitto would go back to London and kill two birds with one stone by trying to flog the items and reassuring Mary's friends that she was having a great time and that she'd even met a rich Scottish widower while away. The two also made plans to carry out a big robbery, to hit the house in Kirtleton that Roy had once worked in, in order to get enough cash to get out of the country. He had kind of become fixated on her in recent weeks. He wanted some sort of revenge for how things had ended with his employment there. But that was a three-man job, 
so Roy and Kitto would have to wait until Roy's brother, Donald, got out of prison in a few weeks' time. They travelled and sold their valuables and drank heavily for the Christmas period. Then they returned to the cottage in Newton Arlish. On the 9th of January, they ditched the car that they had rented in the Scott Elliott's names behind a hotel. In the few weeks they'd had it, they'd racked up 5,150 miles. They knew they needed to get rid of it, though, as it tied them directly to the murders. They managed to rent another car the next day and headed south. Roy stopped into a joke shop and bought three masks, as he was still mulling over the idea of breaking into Lady Hudson's house. Then they stopped into a garage to have new number plates made up for the car. They'd paid for two days for the rental, but intended on keeping the car much longer than that. And although they had plenty of money now, they sure as hell weren't going to pay for the hire. They also knew that soon enough they'd no longer be able to go back to the Scott Elliots to raid it again. They'd been gone a few weeks and family would no doubt begin to get worried. And of course, they were right. The day after Roy and Kitto made their final visit to the flat on Sloan Street, the police broke in the door. Family had called and said no one had heard from the elderly couple, and the doorman in the building confirmed that they were gone. Not only that, he'd said he'd not been left a set of keys as was usual, and the ever-diligent Dorothy had not remembered to cancel the newspapers before leaving, which was extremely unlike her. The place was in total disarray and had obviously been gone over. Suspicion fell on the butler. The doorman was able to give a description and say that he hadn't much liked the man. He also told the police that, given the Scott Elliot's health, there was no way that they would have rented a car for themselves, as neither was able to drive any longer. Police knew that there had been a car rented, though, and that it had been left abandoned behind a hotel in Scotland. What's more, when the police searched the flat in Sloan Street, they found Mr. Scott Elliott's medication. They also found blood on the wall of Mrs. Scott Elliott's room and could tell that the carpet had been recently washed. The search for the Scott Elliott's and their butler was on. The police figured that Scotland was a good start. Meanwhile, Roy had linked up with his brother Donald, who had just gotten out of prison. Neither Roy nor John Wooter were particularly fond of Donald. Not only was he now totally unkempt, they knew he had a liking for young girls, and that was utterly unacceptable. To keep him away from young Caroline, and because he thought he still might be some use to him, Roy took him up to the cottage at Newton Arlish. Roy still planned on robbing Lady Hudson. He thought that the three of them could manage it, wear the masks, tie up the old woman and her maid if they were caught, and make off with the best bits from the house that he was so familiar with. Donald was on board with the whole plan, nearly delighted to be included, and he sat and drank himself stupid in a pub while Roy and Kitto discussed plans. It had been over two years since Donald's last drink, and he was downing whiskies like there was no tomorrow. By the time he got back to the cottage, Roy knew that Donald was going to be a problem. There was no way he'd be able to keep quiet if he drank, and drinking was all he seemed to want to do now that he was free. Trying to be helpful, Donald told the other two men that he could help out if they were caught in the house. He knew a way to tie someone up in such a way that they couldn't get loose. 
He said he'd show the other two and went into his room to grab something to demonstrate with. While he was away, Roy turned to Kitto and said, quote, He's another Mary, end quote. Donald came back and went about tying himself up. While Kitto watched the display, Roy went to the kitchen to fetch a brown glass bottle. It contained chloroform. The minute Donald realised what Roy was doing as he doused a cloth with liquid and made his way towards him, he began to struggle. But it was no use. He was already mostly tied up and on the floor. As Roy held the cloth to his face, Donald managed to break some of his bonds and lashed out at Kitto, who was holding him down. Kitto ended up with scrape marks down his cheek that drew blood. But Donald ended up dead. Roy then went and filled the bathtub with water. To slow down rigor mortis, he said. He was sure he'd read that somewhere. And then he and Kitto moved Donald's body. The next day, Roy went out in front of the cottage and fitted the new number plates to the red Ford that they were driving. Again, Roy thought that this went unobserved, but again, he was wrong. Then they loaded Donald up and headed north, back to Scotland. The police, meanwhile, had made contact with the hire company, who had leased the car to the Scott Elliots. Unfortunately, the company had washed and vacuumed the car by that point, but they had noted the car's condition when it was found. It had been well-driven, and was also covered in cigarette ash. Roy and Kitto made their way north and eventually checked into a hotel in North Berwick, a seaside town 25 miles east of Edinburgh. But the hotelier was suspicious of Roy in particular. He didn't like his manner or the way he chatted incessantly, and when the man's wife agreed, they decided to call the local police. When the police arrived and had a look at the car that the two suspicious men were driving, they found out that the plates belonged to a different car entirely, owned by a business in England. When questioned, Roy said that they had borrowed the car from a friend and even offered to place a phone call, but the police would not allow it. The two men were to come with them to the station. Roy helpfully offered to drive the car to the station for them, but the police refused this too. At the station, while Kitto was being questioned, Roy visited the bathroom. He had items on his person that he couldn't have found by the police. A list with names, phone numbers and addresses, some of associates, friends and family, and some of potential targets for burglary. A stolen driver's license, stolen credit cards. Everything he could he tore up and flushed down the toilet, and he shoved the rest in any little crack or crevice he could find. It was at that point he noticed the window was open, but he returned to Kitto and answered more police questions before excusing himself again. He said he wasn't well and needed the loo, and this time he pushed open the window and climbed through. He was off out over the wall and walking away from the station in no time, and soon managed to get a hold of a taxi driver, first to take him into Dunbar, the nearest big town, to check for his quote-unquote ill wife, and then out towards Edinburgh, following his fake wife's transfer there. But there was a roadblock on the way to the hospital in Edinburgh, and Roy was rearrested. Things were very serious for him now, because the police had been hard at work trying to figure out what was going on with these strange men and their stolen car. The car had in fact been searched. And that was when Donald's body was found. It gave the police constable who opened the boot an awful shock. It wasn't at all what he was expecting to find, 
But there it was. Fake plates had turned into a murder investigation. Because being covered in plastic in the back of a stolen car doesn't exactly scream natural death. They also had contact from the police down in London to ask them to be on the lookout for the Scott Elliots. That they had left their home before Christmas and hadn't been seen since, but the car that they had hired had been dumped. They told Scottish police that the elderly couple, if they were still alive, would be travelling with their butler, Archibald Thompson Hall. A call was put into London to have senior officers come up. When in custody, Kitto broke first. He ended up telling the police all about how they had killed Donald and that they had planned on dumping the body. Police then had to get in touch with their colleagues in Cumbria to have them search the cottage. Kitto was charged with having false plates on the car while the investigation continued. He declined the services of a solicitor. Roy, on the other hand, now back in custody, was refusing to speak to anyone until he had seen a lawyer. The police informed him of what they had found, and he continued to refuse to provide information to them. The police got news that a bottle of chloroform had been found in the cottage in Newton Arlish, and it was clear that the jurisdiction for the most serious crime was now actually in England. Both the Cumbrian police and the officers from the Met were on the way to Haddington, where the two men were being held in separate cells. The plan was that the Cumbrian police would take the lead, as they were the ones with the most serious crime on their hands. When the officers arrived to the station in early afternoon, plans were begun to bring the two men south down to Carlisle. Everyone thought that that was the best course of action, given the information that they had. But then, Kitto started talking again. A Scottish officer had come in to charge him, and wasn't even halfway through the caution, when Kiddo blurted out that there had been three other murders. A more senior officer was got and he gave a long statement outlining the deaths of the Scott Elliots and Mary Coggle. They knew the Met had a line of inquiry open about the Scott Elliots and that Archibald Thompson Hall had indeed been their butler and they also knew that the body of an unidentified woman had been found in a stream near Dumfries. The police put all of this to Roy too Initially, he stuck with the stony-faced approach, until he was cautioned and told that if he made a statement, it would be taken down for evidence. At that, Roy blurted out that he would make a statement, that there was another body out there, buried in the grounds of Lady Hudson's house, and Roy had shot him. That night, as Roy contemplated going back to prison for the rest of his life, he realised that this time was entirely different from the others. He had spent nearly half of his life in prison and had been sentenced to a total of 39 years, but always before he had the prospect of getting out. This time there would be no getting out for him. And so, when the prison officer checked his cell before lights out, Roy asked for a cup of water. With this drink, he swallowed a bag of pills that he had secreted into the prison on his body. He thought that he would be left alone for the night to die peacefully, but prison officers were in fact tasked with checking on him every two hours. He was quickly discovered and rushed to Edinburgh Royal Infirmary, where he had his stomach pumped. The next day, a rather sparse press conference was given, where the police would only confirm that a body had been found in the boot of a car, and two men were helping with their inquiries. But the newspapermen already knew that. 
they already knew about the Scott Elliots and the cottage in Newton Arlish, and that the body from Christmas Last in Dumfries had also been identified and connected to this crime. Rumours abounded, yet the two men in custody had only at that point been charged with motoring offences, and there were numerous leaks from the police departments. The press tracked down John Wooter literally minutes after he was informed of the death of his stepson. He answered their questions and handed over photographs of both of his stepsons. They also managed to find Hazel Peterson. It was clear that the press had good sources and that they were reporting that they had their information from a senior detective. One paper had this senior officer saying that they didn't, quote, know how many bodies we might end up with, end quote. On the 18th of January, Mr. Scott Elliott's body was found, but the search for that of his wife was called off due to fog and snow. Though sad news for the wider community and his friends and family, the announcement was also very problematic for the press. Whatever was going on in this affair, it seemed that the murders had occurred in both England and Scotland, and Scotland had different laws relating to what could be reported about a case once someone had been charged. The day that Kitto appeared in court charged with being in possession of coins stolen from the Scott Elliot's home, the papers reported on the searches that were going on, and other police activity. But for fear of running afoul of Scottish laws, they could do little else. The law had been very restrictive as of a 1958 judgment by Lord Clyde, the then Lord President, similar to a Chief Justice. In that case, the Daily Mail published a picture of a man that the police wanted to speak to on the very morning that he happened to be charged with a double murder. Lord Clyde held that, by publishing a picture of the man when he was accused of a crime, this might prejudice the case against him, and that the act of publishing material that would identify an accused person amounted to contempt of court. The Daily Mail ended up with fines in the region of £5,500. The edition of the 19th of January of the Scottish Daily Mail carried a story that featured Roy prominently and discussed his employment as a butler. That was the day the police officers arrived to Roy's hospital room and arrested him for the theft of the coins as well. This would prove problematic. When the officers got there, they saw that Roy was in much better form than they had thought, and Roy wanted to point out David Wright's grave to them. They took the two-hour journey over to Lady Hudson's estate. Despite the fact that Roy was chatty and friendly, and in generally good form on his way across the country, he didn't manage to get far by the time the car pulled up next to the burn. He collapsed and was rushed to the nearest police station, where they had a doctor waiting for him. The doctor said he was perfectly fine, but had been overly affected by the cold from his stay in hospital. So as not to waste the trip, Roy drew them a detailed map of Lady Hudson's grounds near to the stream and pinpointed exactly where they would find David Wright's body, which he had buried in a shallow grave at the bank. And in fact, the map was so good that despite the weather and snow in the area, the police did manage to locate the body. From where it was and how it was hidden, the police said that they would never have found it were it not for Roy's confession and map. Roy also insisted on showing the police exactly where it was that he had dumped Mary Coggle's body on the Blackburn. Roy spent the night in a top security cell in Sawton Prison before getting back into a police car and bringing the officers out to the place where he had dumped Mrs. Scott Elliot's body. 
Over that weekend, while Roy was being driven from gravesite to gravesite, John Wooter had been in touch with Roy's former roommates in Her Majesty's prison service. He was recommended a top Scottish lawyer, Leonard George Murray, who agreed to represent Roy. The two met before Roy's first court appearance, and his advocate's first impression of his demeanour was polished and affable. But just a day before the charge of murder was to be laid, later that week, it would appear that the butler was losing his composure. He became nervous and agitated, and he requested a meeting with the lead detective on his case because he said he had information about a woman who was going to board a plane with explosives. But when the inspector arrived, Roy was going on about how Kitto had been poisoned in the prison. Someone had made it look like a suicide and he was next. He said he'd overheard people outside his cell talking about killing him for five pounds. Both the inspector and the prison authorities assured Roy that Kitto was alive and well, and there were no such threats against him. It would have been insanely difficult to get at him anyway. Given Roy's history of escapes, there was a heavy guard on him at all times. It was impossible for him to get out, or for him to be gotten to. The next day, both Roy and Kitto appeared in court, and they were charged with murdering Walter Scott Elliot. Roy was also charged with the murder of David Wright. His antics the previous day seemed to have been forgotten, and it's likely that the whole episode was an act to try and begin a defence of insanity. Roy had been happily responding to every letter that was sent to him to pass his time, but soon he became aware that they were being sold to journalists. His new obsession was then keeping tabs on the people he knew and what stories they had sold to papers, and how much money they had made from him. He called them parasites. Even some of his old prison buddies tried to strike things back up with him, and a number of them were turned away at the prison gates. In March, the Daily Mail was accused of contempt of court for their story that ran on the 19th of January. The case was scheduled for hearing before a full bench of seven judges. On May 2nd, Roy and Kitto both pled guilty to the charges against them. Roy had John Wooter bring his best suit for the hearing that lasted only an hour. Some of the facts of the case against the men were repeated for the court, but it was noted that much was left unsaid because the men could face further charges in another jurisdiction, in England. It was most unusual. Either way, in the end, both men were sentenced to life imprisonment, and Roy was to spend a minimum of 15 years incarcerated for the murders. Upon leaving the court, Kitto turned to the benches where the mildly disappointed press sat and grinned at them. He said, quote, Life begins at 40. Roy and Kitto stayed in Scotland for another 10 days, which was the time prescribed by Scottish law in which to lodge an appeal. Neither men had any real grounds for an appeal, and so, as soon as it passed, they were shipped back to England and ended up in Wandsworth Prison. Roy was happy with the move, out of what he called the primitive conditions of his prison in Scotland, but he was becoming ever more morose. He was convinced he would somehow be put to death, or that he was going to die in prison. He variously lashed out at those close to him for selling their stories and encouraged them to do so in order that he, and they, might profit from the whole affair. He turned against Kitto, who he said had turned snitch on him. 
This was despite the fact that the two men's statements were much the same. Roy had gone out of his way to not implicate anyone else in the crimes, including Kitto and especially his family. But Kitto had not been so discreet, and perhaps this is what caused Roy's rancor. On the 21st of June 1978, the two appeared in court, where they were charged with three counts of murder and conspiracy to rob the Scott Elliots. Amazingly, Roy decided to plead not guilty. Every dog has his day, he said. He would have his day in court. While they were waiting, another matter was making its way through the courts in Scotland, the contempt case against the Daily Mail. The seven-panel judge shed down to five and then to three. The judgment was delivered on the 12th of July. Unsurprisingly, they found that, according to Scottish law, the Daily Mail had in fact fallen afoul of the contempt laws. But they also took the opportunity to expand on Lord Clyde's initial decision and clarify that contempt would only ensue after someone had been charged rather than arrested, which overall makes a lot of sense. There are still strict contempt laws in Scotland, but they've been updated in cases from the 90s. The most recent case of the sort was in 2018, when the Scottish Daily Paper printed pictures of men accused of criminal activity, where it was felt that the nature of the articles, together with the photos, unduly prejudiced the accused. Kitto and Roy appeared at the Old Bailey for trial on the 2nd of November, 1978. The hearing was to take place in the new wing of the building, in Court 7, and the benches for the press were packed as they awaited the judge, James Miskin, recorder of London. Just after half-past ten, Roy and Kitto were led into the courtroom by prison guards. Both men were dressed in suits, though Roy's was much nicer than Kitto's. The charges were read out and put to the men. Their response astonished the press. Kitto pled guilty to theft, guilty of the manslaughter of Mrs. Scott Elliot, guilty of the murder of Mary Coggle, and finally he pled guilty to the manslaughter of Donald Hall. Roy pled not guilty to the theft charges, and not guilty to the murder of Mrs. Scott Elliot. He pled guilty to the murder of Mary Coggle, and guilty to the murder of his own brother, Donald Hall. There had been a deal struck between the prosecution and defence teams in order, they said, to save the court the time and expense of a trial. The facts of the case were then presented to the judge, from the killing of Dorothy Scott Elliot in her bedroom to keep her from raising the alarm about the two men, to the moment that Donald Hall's body was found in a car that had been driven halfway across the country. Only one witness was called for the prosecution, and that was a member of the police force, required to read out the men's criminal records for the judge and to attest to the investigation begun in London when it was noticed that the Scott Elliots were missing. Roy's counsel then addressed the court. He noted that Roy was already sentenced to a minimum of 15 years by the Scottish courts and asked that the same be granted for him in this venue. He said that, given his client's age, he would be 70 in 15 years' time. There was no guarantee that he'd live that long, or that he'd be released upon having served those years, but at least this way his client would have some hope of release in the future. Then counsel for Kitto took over. This was an altogether more thorough exchange. 
he pointed out that Kitto had been under the influence of alcohol at the time of the killing of Dorothy Scott Elliott and said that the whole thing had come about because of his client's relationship with Roy. He told the court of Kitto's sexual relationship with Roy and said that Hall was domineering. Kitto would do whatever he was told. A psychiatrist gave an opinion to the court which supported this view. Neither man had anything to say before sentencing when asked by the judge. Roy was given life in prison with no possibility of release, excepting circumstances where his health failed and he required it. Kitto got three years for theft, two six-year sentences to run consecutively for the manslaughter charges, and life for murder, with a minimum of 15 years to be served. Roy looked pale as he was led out of the court, and was not his usual affable self when he spoke to his solicitor after the verdict. Roy was sent to Hull Prison, where he was told he would spend the rest of his life. He was unhappy with the placement and thought that if he was to live out his days behind bars, he'd like to do it in a quieter setting, along with other lifers like himself who were just after a peaceful existence. But his transfer was refused. And so Roy decided to go on hunger strike. He refused all food, saying he wanted to serve out his sentence in Scotland. But the Home Office wouldn't give in, and Roy, being stubborn, wouldn't either. For weeks, trays of food were delivered to his cell and would sit there for an hour until they were taken away again, untouched. He drank only water. Quickly, he began to waste away and was transferred to the hospital wing, but it became apparent that this too was not suitable for him. He needed constant care and monitoring. He was sent to the maximum security prison at Wakefield. He became disorientated and hallucinated and was very weak indeed, but he still persisted. He proudly recalled that he beat out Frank Stagg, an IRA hunger striker who had lasted 62 days, with his record being 84. Roy had decided to have some dinner at Christmas. Somehow, after realising that the Home Office and prison services were having none of it, Roy ended his strike, and despite the fact that he had lost more than half of his body weight, he managed to survive. He had lain for months just waiting for death, and still it would not take him. He was to continue to request that he be transferred to a facility where he could be housed among other lifers serving life tariffs. By the early 90s, he was serving his time in full Sutton prison, which he detested. He wanted to secure a place in the lifer's unit at Kingston. There, the small amount of money he made working could be used to buy a television of his own, and he would be able to settle into some sort of life amongst his peers. This was continually refused. He was, in fact, transferred to a new prison in 1997, due to damage caused by a riot at Full Sutton's E-Wing, where he was housed. He ended up where he had previously longed to be, in Kingston. But he found he couldn't settle in the strange place, nor could he make any friends. In 1998, he returned to Full Sutton. From then on, he for the most part kept himself to himself, and the only real trouble he was in was if the prison guards found his homemade wine secreted in the cells. He believed strongly that the prison system did nothing in terms of reform for those in its care. This was not only based on the behaviour of the younger people he saw coming in to serve their time, 
and what he thought of as a total disregard for authority that he saw in them. He was quick to differentiate himself from this rabble as he saw them. He said that at least he had seen fit to drag himself out of the low social status he had been born into. But this was also a kind of self-serving position. Perhaps he would never have been in this trouble if he had never been sent to prison in the first place and had been forced to serve such long sentences. He also railed against the unfairness of sentencing laws. He said that property crimes were treated more harshly than paedophiles and rapists. The whole system was corrupt in his view. Eventually, in the late 90s, he was moved back to Kingston Prison once more. And, astonishingly, Roy managed to live on into the new millennium. He died of a stroke in there in September of 2002. He was 78. It's not often that we have the resource of an account of crimes written by the criminal himself, but in this case, Roy published an autobiography in 1999, and I must say, the book wasn't the worst one I had ever read. But I think Roy's own account is to be treated with a healthy scepticism. At the point of its writing, he must have known that all that was left for him was his legacy and what he would be remembered for. It reads like he's trying to impress the reader, but it's quite a lame attempt. He name-drops long-dead celebrities, socialites, and politicians as if the audience might know what he's on about. I think he must have had access to the other book on his life, The Butler by James Copeland, who conducted extensive interviews with him in prison after his final trial, and which was also used as a main source for these two episodes. Copeland also spent a good deal of time trying to verify what Roy had told him before including it in the book. Many of the stories Roy tells coincides with what was written by Copeland. Many of the accounts are very similar, with a surprising amount of recall for the events of 30 years previous. And those stories that don't appear in both books do seem to paint Roy in a certain light. But you do find yourself wanting to believe Roy's version of it. A hapless burglar is turned into a suave, overly sexed jewel thief who once met Liz Taylor and Robert Redford, and it's the sort of thing that could definitely be made into a film. It's a bit fantastical, but you kind of want to believe it, which is perhaps the most telling part. Roy continues to be clever and manipulative to the last, edging you in the direction that he wanted. If he wasn't able to travel the world, catch me if you can style, in tailored suits and with champagne, he at least wanted you to think that his time outside of prison was just that. His tone throughout the book changes in very interesting ways too. You can tell that he's trying hard to write a good story, but he uses cliches and flicks back and forth between sounding cultured and being quite crass. The intention here seems to be both to shock the reader and to give his readers what they want, a good murder story and a bit of titillation. According to his memoir, John Wooter was far more involved in the murders than either Kitto or Roy let on to the police. And most significantly here, Roy says that Wooter was the one who instigated Donald's death. John didn't want his stepson living with him and asked Roy to take care of it. Perhaps that sense of loyalty that Roy was fond of talking about was in fact the truth. Maybe he had protected his friend and stepfather all those years. Archibald Thompson Hall, Roy Hall, 
Roy Fontaine, was most certainly a thief and a conman. How successful he was at his chosen career is by far less definite. Was he a high-flying jewel thief and a confidence man, who managed to fly below the radar and get away with huge hauls of valuable goods, stolen from those who trusted him? Or was he altogether less successful, a man who spent more time in prison or jumping out of windows and over fences than necking champagne and sleeping with the rich and famous? But then, maybe the truth is somewhere in between. Thanks for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you like what you heard, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. You can get in touch on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at MensReaPod, or why not shoot me an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. I really love hearing from you guys, so do get in touch. A special thank you to our supporters on Patreon. Big thanks this time round to new patrons Henley, Sonia Donnelly, and Gary Dugdale. Thanks so much, guys. Your support means the world to me. If you want to brighten my day or get some nifty podcast swag or have access to early release, ad-free or bonus men's right content, head on over to Patreon today. It's basically like buying me a monthly cup of coffee and keeps me and the podcast running. Thanks also to some of our recent five-star reviews over on Apple Podcasts. I'm back in the Irish Apple Store and thank you for your five stars to Eames C., Great to hear from another true crime addict. Thank you to ChipChop8542-5785. Again, thank you for letting me nerd out over Irish law. Thank you to Mermux for your five stars. And thank you finally to The John Mac. Thanks so much for your reviews, guys, and your feedback. I really do love hearing from you, and it's a great way to get in touch. It also helps the podcast out and is a really easy way to support. So thanks again, guys. Next time, we're back in Ireland and going back further in time than ever before to find out about a foul murder in one of North County Dublin's most picturesque seaside sites. This podcast is researched, written and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources used for today's episode can be found on our website, www.mensreapod.com, and in the show notes. Do check them out. Our theme song is Quinn Song First Dance by Kevin MacLeod. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. (laughs) 